Once upon a time, there were four little rabbits. How old are you, Johnny? She asked. Sixteen. We few, we happy few, we band of brothers. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. A wise old king once said, Of the making of books, there is no end. How true today. Of the overabundance of writing published each year, what's worth reading? The answer is simple. Read only the best. Come join the discussion on Just the Best Literature. Well, hello again, everyone. Thanks for listening in today. Well, with me in the studio is my producer, Mr. Dan Arnfield. Good afternoon, Dan. Hello. Good to have you again for everybody out there, if I didn't have a producer in here, you wouldn't be listening to anything. So uh, uh, it's just great to have him. He's very conscientious. He's also very much in tune with what to do with me and my mistakes that you never hear. So there we go. So uh, I don't have any comments today. And I just wanted to kind of rely on one I had a couple weeks ago. Remember, I think, uh, before I said uh, that there was one listener who re- really listened to one of our programs, uh, especially, I think it was the Polo program, and they were so excited about that program, they wanted to join the discussion with me. So so I'm sorry I lost that in the mail. So if you're still out there and you're very excited, let me know. And uh, uh, just I'll, I'll get the right comment out for the right guy. Anyway, just remember, all comments are greatly appreciated. Now, for today's program, I want to dive into Chapter 10. And it is, uh, I'm already getting ready to call you students because we're getting ready for finals and it's the end of the semester and, (laughs) you know, everybody's a student right now, uh, even me. So uh, what I want to do is I want to uh, dive into Chapter 10. And uh, chapter 10 is, is titled The Malican Field Force. And so, so again, hopefully all of you out there are really enjoying this book. I'm enjoying it. I've read it, I mean, more than once. I uh, even taught it in sophomore English for, for a year or two. And there's really a lot, there's really a lot to this book that uh, I think is just really exciting because he's a good story. Not only is he a good storyteller, he's really giving us a view into the British Empire and giving a, a, us a view of what England was like and what the world was like when when he was really really very active. Now, before we uh, we start chapter chapter ten, I want to uh, make a comment or two on pages one twenty and one twenty one of chapter nine. Remember that chapter was education at Bangalore. Now, the reason I'm doing this is is when I was studying this to get ready for today's program, I actually believe that I need to discuss with you the the just the very end of chapter nine so that you fully can understand the importance behind chapter ten. And there's there's some things at the bottom of page one twenty and uh, um, that really I think would really help you understand because I uh, when I was actually getting ready for the program, I was reading chapter 10, and I thought, what's he talking about? What's, what's, he, what's he mentioning? And then I slipped back over to chapter 9, and I found out what was really going on. So the very bottom of page 120 says there, and, and um, uh, this is the very last paragraph on that page. It says, with the approach 
of the hot weather season of 1897, it became known that a proportion of officers might have what was called three months accumulated privilege leave to uh, to uh, England. So so here he is. He's he's loving uh, India. Uh, we know from reading this chapter, he really educated himself at Bangalore. He spent a lot of his time, you know, five, six hours a day studying. And now he has a chance to get three months off and go back to England. <laughs> and notice what he says here. He says, having so newly arrived, hardly anybody wanted to go. And and he really did love India. He loved being there. And, uh, you know, in some ways he felt he just got there. Now he's got three months leave to go back to England. He's thinking, I don't know if I want to do that. But, but he said, uh, I thought it was a pity that such good things should go a-begging. And I, therefore, volunteered to fill the gap. <laughs> so no one else wanted to go. So he said, I'm going to go. And he says, I sailed from Bombay towards the end of May in sweltering heat, rough weather, and fearful sicknesses. So, so I can imagine, uh, you know, leaving India in the sweltering heat. Also, if, if rough weather is on the sea, you're going to have seasickness. I mean, that's, that's going to happen. And, uh, uh, but, but he still wanted to go. He says, when I sat up again, meaning after he was in the heat and the sickness, he said, when I sat up again, we were two thirds across the Indian Ocean and I soon struck up an acquaintance with a tall, thin colonel, then in charge of musketry training in India named Ian Hamilton. Now, one of the things about Winston Churchill that I think is we could really teach a lot of our children is, he was not afraid to go up and talk to anybody. And and uh, uh, if he wanted to learn something and he felt someone could teach him, he would go talk to them. So, so, so he have, I mean, we still have, he's young Winston, we could we can obviously say that. And uh, he said he wanted to talk to this man. And of course, he was in charge of musketry and training in India. So there's, I'm sure there's things he wanted to talk to him about and wanted to learn. Now, he goes on to say, he pointed out to me what I had hitherto overlooked that there was tension between Greece and Turkey. And in fact, those powers were on the point of war. And so, so we have to remember that we don't want to say that Winston Churchill was a warmonger, but we wouldn't know that he wanted to fight. <laughs> he wanted to go to wars and he wanted to fight. We know what he did in Cuba. We've already covered that. He said, uh, uh, he goes on to say, in fact, those powers were on the point of war. Being romantic, he was for the Greeks and hoped to serve with them in some capacity. Having been brought up at Tory, I was for the Turks, and I thought I might follow their armies as a newspaper correspondent. So, so here he is. He, he said, okay, no one else wants to go back to England. I'm going to go back to England. Okay, so he meets this, this colonel, uh, uh, you know, on the, uh, on the the the, uh, the way back to England, and he's obviously there could be a war in Greece or Turkey and Turkey where he could be in, and he's thinking, oh, well maybe I'd <laughs> maybe I'd just go and, and fight, and so uh, uh, then this is what he says: he's having been brought up a Tory, I was for the Turks, and I thought I might follow their armies as a newspaper correspondent. 
Now, now to me, that's just really very, very kind of interesting and exciting. It's like Winston, he, he wanted to be a soldier. You know, he wanted to go to, to, uh, to India. He wanted to spend his time in India. But there is never a time, I don't think, where Winston did not try and remake himself. In other words, he's already made it, he made it as a subaltern. He's made it into the, uh, into the, the military. And now he's thinking, well, maybe I could go fight this war in Turkey and Greece, but as a newspaper correspondent. And so, so he wants to now be a newspaper correspondent. He said, I also declared that they would certainly defeat the Greeks as they were at least five to one and much better armed. So, so he, here's another thing about young Winston. He's not afraid to give his analysis to another colonel. He's saying, Oh, the Greeks are going to lose. They're not fighters. They're not like the Turks. And he, he makes that analysis as that hey, they're not going to win. And, uh, he, he said, I also declared that they would certainly defeat the Greeks as they were at least five to one and much better armed. Now we know that when we get into, to World War One and World War Two, you know, uh, Winston Churchill was fighting there as well, and he understood uh, a lot about Turkey and the Dardanelles, and uh, that's that's for another program. He said he was genuinely pained, so I made it clear that I would take no part in the operations, but would merely see the fun and tell the tale. <laughs> so, so the the colonel that he was me- meeting there didn't seem to really want him necessarily there. So, so he goes on then to say, when we arrived at Port Said, and if uh, one of the things that I had to look up geographically, well, where is Port Said? And um, I mean, here they're they're actually on their way back to to England. And how how did he get to Port Said? And actually, Port Said is northeast Egypt, extending about thirty kilometers along the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, just west of the Suez Canal. And so, so there he is. I mean, you can, if you really read this book thoroughly and really take the time, you can actually follow him as he goes back to England. And he ends up, you know, at the, at the Port Said on the Mediterranean Sea. He's, he's in Northeast Egypt at the point, at that point. Uh, he goes that it was clear that the Greeks had already been defeated. They had run away from the unfair contest with equal prudence and rapidity, and the great powers were endeavoring to protect them by diplomacy from destruction. So, so here he was right. He said the Greeks aren't going to win. Turks are going to take them down. And so, so again, you could see that he did have a mind for the military. He did have a mind for battles. He did have a mind for winning wars. And so, so to me, I thought that this is just really just a very interesting section. And again, this is still education at Bangalore. But uh, he goes on to say, uh, I spent a fortnight in Italy. So, okay, so he's, he's passed, uh, you know, he's uh, passed Port Said. Now he is near Italy. And what he does, he's, he takes two weeks in Italy. He doesn't go all the way back to England. He just stops in Italy. And he starts climbing Vesuvius. <laughs> he said uh, he was doing Pompeii and, above all, seeing Rome. And so, so I mean, think about it. I mean, to me, 
it seemed like to me if if I were the same age as Winston Churchill, he would be a fun guy to beat around. Because he said, hey, come on, uh, let's go climb Vesuvius, <laughs> even though it might explode. Let's go ahead and climb it. And then he went to Pompeii, which uh, Vesuvius had destroyed anyway. And so, so anyway, he says, I read again the sentences in which Gibbon has described the emotions which in his later years for the first time he approached the eternal city. And remember now, he was studying Gibbon in Bangalore. And you could see that in his mind, he's thinking, wow, I'd like to go see Rome. I mean, Gibbon talks about it. I want to go see the, it's called the Eternal City. And though I had none of his credentials of learning, it was not without reverence that I followed in his footsteps. So, so in some ways, you can see that Winston is still educating himself. He read about Rome. Well, now he's going to see Rome. He said, this formed a well-conceived prelude to the gaieties of the London scene. And so, so here he's, he's wanting to remake himself. Uh, he's wanting to be, uh, a, you know, a correspondent, a war correspondent. He's, uh, he's been at Port Said. He's been in North, Northeastern Egypt. Now he's in Italy. And he said, wow, this was really something interesting. And it really got him ready for the gaieties of the London season. So, so when we get then to chapter 10, now he introduces us to what was happening to him when he got to London. He did get to London, very top of the page, page 122. Uh, he opens up this chapter 10, and again, it's the Malacan Field Force. He says, I was, I was on the lawns of Goodwood in lovely weather and winning my money when the revolt of the Pathan tribesmen of the Indian frontier began. And so, so essentially what he's doing now, he's in England, and you know what he's doing? The biggest thing that happened on the lawns of Goodwood were horse races. And so he's, he's, uh, he said he's winning his money, so he's betting on horse racing. So, so as a subaltern, he must have had enough money to be able to, um, you know, do some, some, uh, betting. But remember his mom, also, she would also have had money and she would, she would likely have been at Goodwood with him. He doesn't say that, but it, it wouldn't be surprising if she was. He goes on, he said, um, he said he was enjoying Goodwood. He said, when the revolt of the Panthan tribes of the Indian frontier began, I read in the newspapers that a field force of three brigades had been formed and that at the head of it stood Sir Bendon Blood. And uh, if you remember from earlier on uh, in the book, remember it was in 18... I think it was 1886 that uh, he met Bindon Blood for the first time. And as a, as a young subaltern, he, you know, cornered him aside and said, hey, if you ever start another field force, I want to be in it. I mean, that, that, that is what, <laughs> what was going on. And so, so uh, as soon as he saw the name Sir Bindon Blood, that just sent his brain cycling. Oh, how can I get into this war? And so uh, forthwith, I telegraphed, reminding him of his promise, and took the train for Brindisi. And now, now again, if you, if you don't know your geography and you don't look this up, where is Brindisi? And essentially, Brindisi is in Italy. And essentially, what he wants to do is he has to get back now. So again, he's betting on horses in England. He's, he, he doesn't give us how much time he was there. But then all of a sudden, now that he knows that there's going to be a blood fight, 
in India. He wants to get back. And so he says he was going to go to Brindisi to catch the Indian mail. And the, the, the thing is, uh, that's another thing that you really need to, to look up and understand. What is the Indian mail? You know, it's not an envelope. It's not a bag of mail. And, and, and essentially, what the Indian mail was, it was, uh, I'll just uh, give you the quote I took off the internet. It says, the Imperial Indian mail was a steam locomotive running from Bombay to Calcutta. The train was part of a maritime rail system that carried mail and passengers from London to Calcutta and then on to Rangoon by a mix of ships and trains. So it's not just one train. It's a system of trains that the British put together, worked together to be able to, uh, you know, invest their time, invest their efforts in India, as well as, you know, they could also send back information back to, to England. So, so it really is, uh, you know, very interesting. What, what, uh, that's why I'm saying is that you almost need to understand the end of nine to begin to understand chapter 10. And so, uh, so he says, I, uh, it said he was leaving to catch the Indian mail. He says, I impressed Lord William Beresford into my cause. Now, now here he's already written to Sir Bendon Blood. Now there's another man who, a very wealthy man, uh, he, he met, he, he met him and he said, he impressed him about unto his cause. He said, look, I need help. I want to fight in this battle. And it says, he reinforced my appeals to the general. He entertained me at the Marlborough Club before my train left Victoria. These Beresfords had a great air. They made one feel that the world and everyone in it were of fine consequence. I remember the manner in which he announced my purpose to a circle of club friends, uh, many years my seniors. And this is what this, uh, this, uh, Lord, uh, Beresford said about Winston Churchill. He says, he goes to the east tonight, to the seat of war, to the east. The expression struck me. Most people would have said he's going out to India. But to that generation, the east meant the gateway to the adventures and conquests of England. And so, so again, they were getting a, a view of the empire and that, that everybody was excited about the empire. They were excited about India. And, and here, this Lord Beresford, he's got this young man who wants to make sure he gets there. And, and here he's bragging about him in front of the other wealthy lords and, and, uh, the leaders of England. And, you know, he's, he's going to the east. And, uh, you know, and to me, that that was really, uh, it, it just re reminds me so much of how exciting the empire was at one time. And, of course, it's degenerated now and it's falling apart now. I saw on the news the other night that they're, they're offering a gold coin, a special gold coin minted for the, uh, the coronation of Charles III. And, uh, you know... I can't imagine how much that's that's going to cost, <laughs> and uh, 
Charles III didn't even want to take the name Charles III because of Charles II. And we're even going to hear about Charles II in a few minutes. <laughs> so, so uh, uh, anyway, uh, if I had the money, I don't think I'd still buy the coin. You know, but it looks like it's, it's really impressive. And so, to the front, they asked, is he going to the front? And, of course, um, uh, Winston Churchill said, alas, I could only say I hoped so. However, they were all most friendly and even enthusiastic. I felt very important, but naturally observed a marked discretion upon Sir Bindon Blood's plan of campaign. And so, so think about it. Not only was he analyzing what they were going to do with Turkey and Greece, now he's analyzing Sir Bindon Blood's plan for the campaign. And so, how does he know all this stuff? <laughs> Where does he get all of it? And he said, I only just caught the train, but I caught it in the best of spirits. So, so there he's telling us in a kind of off-handed way, uh, he was almost late for the train. You know, remember how time, many times he was, he was late for that one dinner because he didn't take the train right. You know, he didn't, he didn't, uh, uh, allow for the right timing. And uh, of course, then the Prince of Wales just about decked him when he got in an hour late for the dinner. He says, one voice to India is enough. The others are merely repletion. And so, so in some ways, I think he's a little bit of bragging saying, oh, I've already been to India. Now, I'm going again, but it's just like a repletion, or it's almost like it's eating lunch three times. <laughs> you know, you just get, you're going to get fatter. He said it was the hottest season of the year, and the Red Sea was stifling. And so, so he's passing the the, the Middle East. He's going through the near the Red Sea. He's going through, you know by Egypt and and all of that. He said uh, the sea, the Red Sea was stifling. The hand pulled punkas. For those days, there were no electric fans, flapped vigorously to and fro in the crowded dining saloon, and agitated the hot food-smelling air. But these physical discomforts were nothing besides my mental anxieties. So, so here, he's, he's uh, telling you, okay, I was really anxious on this trip back to India. And why was he anxious? He says, I was giving up a whole fortnight's leave. In other words... He, he, he wrote to Sir Bindon Blood, you know, he wanted to be in the fight. He had the, the support of the Beresfords, but he still hadn't heard anything from Sir Bindon Blood. And so now he's really anxious, like, okay, I'm, I'm giving up, <laughs> you know, my leave, and I don't know if it's going to happen. So he goes on to say then, this is the top of page 123, it says, at, at Bryn Brindisi, remember now, he's back in Italy. No answer had come from Sir Bindon Blood. It was sure to come at Aden. Now, Aden, again, this is, a you know, another seaport. And, uh, you know, you can look that up online to see where Aden is. And, uh, uh, you know, it, it is, um, you know, in the Middle East as well. And so... Um, he said, there I danced about, when he got to, to shore on Aden, there I danced about from one foot to the other till the steward had distributed the last of the telegrams and left me forlorn. However, at Bombay, so now, I mean, it, you can see his trip. He's at, he was in Italy, he's in Aden, and, uh, you know, that's in, in the, uh, the uh, Mediterranean area, 
um, it's it, certainly you would see, uh, uh, you know, Jerusalem would be close to that. It's a very historic site. Bombay was good news. The general's message was very difficult. No vacancies. Come up as a correspondent. We'll try to fit you in. Signed, BB. So, so in, in, in some ways, he's getting his wish to be a newspaper correspondent. There wasn't any openings for him to be in the military, like as a captain or, or you know, or subaltern. Or, but he said, hey, come on up. We'll, uh, we'll just treat you as a correspondent. We'll fit you in. And so, so he goes on to say, I, I had first of all to obtain leave from my regiment at Bangalore. And so essentially what, what he had to do is he had to, uh, from Bombay, he had to go back to Bangalore and then ask his regiment if he could now separate from the regiment and go with Sir Bindon Blood. And so, so he goes on to say, this meant a two days journey by railway in the opposite direction to that in which my hopes were directed. The regiment was surprised to see me back before my time. Yeah, he came back before his three months were over. They're going, what's wrong with you? And he said, uh, but an extra subaltern for duty was always welcome. Meanwhile, I had been commissioned. Now listen to this. Meanwhile, I had been commissioned as war correspondent by the Pioneer newspaper. And so he's gotten his wish. And uh, we should not be surprised. Who helped him do that? His mother. It says that my mother had also arranged in England that my letters should be simultaneously published in the Daily Telegraph, for which that journal was willing to pay five pounds a column. And so, so you can see, and he's going to talk a lot more about his mother, you know, as he goes along. She really did help him. But what she was doing, she was turning his personal letters over to the Daily Telegraph and getting him money. People wanted to read it. You know, they were, they were very interested in him. And again, remember now everybody out there, he's just a young man. He says, this was not much, and he's talking about the five pounds a column. This was not much considering that I had to pay all my own expenses. I carried these journalistic credentials when I presented in much anxiety Sir Bindon Blood's telegram to my commanding officer. And so, so Bindon Blood had, you know, he got the telegram. He said, yep, come up, we can use you. He says, but the colonel was indulgent and the fates were kind. Although the telegram was quite inf informal and official, I was told that I could go and try my luck. So here he got his, he got his wish. He's now a war correspondent. He's going to be with Sir Bindon Blood. He's going to be in the fight. He says, That night, therefore, with my dressing boy and campaigning kit, I sped to the Bangalore railway station and bought a ticket for now Shira. The Indian clerk, having collected from me a small sack of rupees, pushed an ordinary ticket through a pigeonhole. I had the curious curiosity to ask how far it was. The polite Indian consulted a railway timetable and impassively answered 2,028 miles. <laughs> so, so he's going to spend all that time in the heat on a train. And he says, quite a big place, India. This meant a five days journey in the worst of the heat. I was alone, but, he says, with plenty of books. So, so guess what? This is, this is still chapter nine.
<laughs> his education. Now his education is on the way uh, through now Shira. He says, those large, leather-lined Indian railway carriages, deeply shuddered and blinded from the blistering sun and kept fairly cool by a circular wheel of wet straw, which one turned from time to time, were well adapted to the local conditions. I spent five days in a dark padded moving cell, reading mostly by lamplight or by some jealously admitted ray of glare. Now, I'm going to skip over some of this, but, but the... Oh, am I out of time already? Well, that's amazing. See, my wife says, you read too much. <laughs> anyway, well, that's all the time I have for today's program. Now on our next program, we'll finish Chapter 10 of the Malakan Field Force, and we'll begin Chapter 11 titled The Mammon Valley. Actually, I think this is going to work out perfectly. So now you can buy My Early Life at Amazon.com. You may be able to find a good used copy at abebooks.com. You may be also able to find a copy in your local bookstore. Now, of course, you can also check your local library. So please write me any comments you may have, and I hope there are many, but please write me any comments you have to jbl at pcog.org. You can follow JBL on Twitter at jbliterature1. You can also follow JBL on Facebook. Simply search for just the best literature. So until next time, keep reading. You've been listening to Just the Best Literature on Trumpet Radio, 101.3 KPCG. Streaming online at kpcg.fm and thetrumpet.com.